0: Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and today's guest is Graham Stool, author of *The Hydra*. Graham, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Maggie. Thanks for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. Now, before we begin chatting, um, could I ask you just to read a little bit from *The Hydra* just to put the listeners in in the picture?
1: Sure, no problem. Um, I'll just read a short piece from close to the beginning of the book. Um, It's uh, sort of the start of the trial. I mean, there is a big trial in the book, so um, hopefully it'll make sense when I I start to read it. But anyway, we can talk more if it doesn't. So here goes. In stature, the witness was small, and his only distinguishing features were a carefully groomed moustache and the telltale swollen joints of a man who had suffered from an early strain of viral infertility syndrome. The Prosecution had evidently dressed him in a thin cotton t-shirt so that the cameras and the court could see his disfigured body. Leeton Kagabu spoke to him gently and with softness. Mr. Kumar, for the benefit of the court, can you please state your full name, age, and where you are from? Vinay Kumar, from Pendishwar, India. I am 34 years old. He spoke in staccato, like an old-fashioned typewriter. But that wasn't because his English was poor. It was nerves, and maybe emotion. And you are a victim of viral infertility syndrome? Yes. Tell us how you got the disease. They say it was from the water, but we could not taste anything different. It came upon us suddenly, all the people in my area. At first they tried to tell us it was a sanitary issue, but I knew this was something different. The older people died and we wept for their passing. But now, now I think it is a blessing they have not lived to see the rest. What about you, sir? I had a fever. First it lasted for a week, and I sweated and went to the toilet all the time. Eventually the fever passed, and I was, I thought I was healthy again. But the fever came back again, and again. It's not so often anymore, but the main problem for me is the joint pain. Which joints hurt you? All of them. My elbows, my wrists, my knees. I cannot sit without pain. I cannot walk without pain. Only on my back. I can lie on my back. Everything else hurts me. How has this affected you? Of course, we cannot have any children. For me, I do not care. I think that with this disease, I will not live very long. But for my wife, here he broke down and started to cry. Kagabu placed his big hand on the witness's shoulder and comforted him. The court sat silently as he sobbed like a child. Who will take care of her when she gets old? When I am dead, it is a disaster for us, for all of us. Kagabu sighed and allowed the cameras a minute to remain on the man's tear-stained face as he tried to compose himself in front of the entire world. As he did so, Kagabu paced around the expert witness box, stopping briefly to cast a withering stare at Art Bloom for returning his features to their former benevolence. Mr. Kumar, I would like now to show you a picture. Kagabu handed him a picture. As he did so, he said to the judge's physical evidence piece ICC stroke 432-A. The five women and men on the judge's bench nodded and took note. In the television box, the editors cut the camera shot to the full-screen scan of the image in seamless synchronization with the courtroom action. Art could see it on the big projector screen which scrolled down from the wall, but the resolution was higher on the CNN livestream on Lisbeth's tablet. The picture showed what appeared to be a mass grave, reminiscent of scenes from a concentration camp, with the bodies of older men and women piled lengthways upon one another. Can you describe for us what you see here? It took Vinay Kumar a minute to gather himself sufficiently to respond. It is my village. The people here are the older ones who died from the infection. We wanted to give them proper funerals according to the rites, but there were so few of us to do it, and so many dead. The healthy ones were afraid of the virus, so they stayed away. Now our village is a sad place, we have no children. There is no future there. Just the memories of death and the emptiness. And with this, he pointed across the courtroom at Brian Matarosi, his voice swelling in anger and indignation. Has taken everything away from us. Art Bloom wrote a single word on his spiral notepad. Bullshit.
0: Mm. And that's our Bloom in a, w- a nutshell as well, isn't it? And uh, I love the way you um, create a a series of dynamics there in that first section um, that you read. This, um, I guess, really quite moving and sad story um, coupled with, you know, quite quite a perhaps reasonably cynical response.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I, I suppose one of the themes that goes through the book, you know, it is a political thriller so one of the themes that goes through the book is you know, what is good and bad, you know, can we be cynical about these things, and and you know, at times y- you are tempted to think, actually maybe we can have a cynical regard on this, and, and other times I guess you, you're supposed to get swept up in the emotions, so uh, I, I personally sort of waver between the two two feelings as I, as I describe the action in the book, so hopefully that comes across to the reader as well.
0: Yes, and I think it does to the reader. I mean, I think it's um, reading the book, uh, and right to the very end, I have to say. um, I won't give anything away, but as I'm reading the book, I I found that it was certainly, um, I I was swaying in my sense of what was the moral position, as in fact I do in life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, no, I feel feel the same. I mean, I I suppose I, I came to the entire issue of, you know, is there even an overpopulation problem? Um, really, because I found myself... I mean, I love to get into political debates anyway, um, but I found myself getting swept up in this really fascinating subject of, of, of overpopulation because, you know, on the one hand, you have people who are absolutely convinced, almost to the point of it being a religious doctrine, that uh, overpopulation is... is big problem, and that uh, if we don't do something about it, um, we're all all in trouble. But equally, on the other hand, you have people who just as vehemently um, will totally nix that idea and say, no, there is no overpopulation, we can easily support 10, 12 billion people on the planet. And and the fact that there are these two violently juxtapos- juxtaposed positions um, for me just made it seem like a, a really interesting debate. And, uh, and so I thought, that's going to be good stuff for a book.
0: Yeah, so is that, is that where the idea for the Hydra came from?
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's, I suppose there's kind of two strands to the book. One is an, an almost um, biographical strand uh, of the main character, which was a story that I had worked on uh, separately, and the other was um, the, the sort of courtroom str- strand, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the virus is released, and this guy's put on trial for what he's done. Um, so those two strands probably started as, as different story ideas, but over time worked themselves into what I hope is one, one coherent kind of plot. Um, but yeah, in terms of the overpopulation stuff, that really just came from me following that debate and, and just being fascinated by, by listening to the different views on it.
0: And, and it's still current. I mean, literally within days after finishing the Hydra. Um, or I should say within the day after, um, and I only read it, only took me a day. It was very fast. <laughs> um, there's a plug. Um, but literally a day after, I, I saw an article in the New York Times, m- maybe you saw it as well, about um, the overpopulation crisis. Um, and it, it was something along the lines of, uh, you know, we. it's no longer an issue. It hasn't been an issue for some time um, because we now... We now have an issue around consumption, not around overpopulation. We can feed these people, but we're too greedy.
1: Yeah, and I think you know that's that's um, part of the debate, really. Is is, is, is um, are we too greedy, or is it the case that when a lot of people are in poverty, like you know a third of the world is in consistent poverty at the moment, those people are always going to want to have what what we in the West take for granted. They're going to want high protein diets. And as they do, um, that's going to push up the level of environmental degradation. Um, you know, We can reduce our consumption, sure, but, um, and again, this is only the counter argument, because I think you could come back with, with another argument against this as well, but, uh, but then the people say, look, even if we Westerners were to cut our consumption in half, because our level of consumption is so much higher than the poorest in the world if they were to increase their consumption by 100 percent, whereas we cut ours by by half um we're still into a net increase in environmental damage of you know 100 200 of where we are now and, yeah. and we're already missing our climate targets so isn't this a problem i don't know
0: yes and and is it you know is the right answer? And I guess this is where the the you know one of the many intriguing threads in the book comes from. Um, is the right answer to you know to take a governmental or or take a personal um, sort of uh, pater- paternalistic uh, decision that you know well the, the solution is this. You know we can we can stop you from having children, for example. That's one one solution. Yeah,
1: yeah I mean, I, I think I should saying i'm not an advocate of a mad scientist creating an infertility <laughs> no. but uh, but that's just a sort of uh by way of getting the debate going um of course no i mean i think um you know there's there's scope for more personal responsibility there's scope for um better government policies that can nudge people in the right way and and i think there's scope for us to sort of look at our, our consumption patterns a little bit harder and say well hold on a second do i really need to have you know, fifteen portions of meat a week. Yeah. Could I? You know, I don't have to become vegetarian, but maybe I could reduce my meat to, um, you know, eight portions a week, or or even five, and, and I'd still be perfectly healthy. Um, which I guess is is maybe what you were you were saying before about the the New York Times article. I don't know, but um, yes, maybe it's going to be a combination of small solutions that gets us there. Uh, yeah. Which is is less less dramatic for a book, obviously, but <laughs> you know, in real life. Uh, it's probably better. Uh,
0: yes. Well, I mean, again, I, I love all the different threads I- in the book, and, and not that I'm a geneticist myself, but the science certainly comes across as, as very credible. Um, did you do a lot of research in, in bioengineering? Was it something you have an interest in?
1: Uh, yeah, it's, it's not really something I had any knowledge in, but I knew that if I wanted to give the, the book anything like an authentic voice, I would have to read my way in. And, you know, I literally just started with Wikipedia pages and then I read a lot of biographical accounts of scientists because I found that that was a good way to if you want to write like a scientist and talk like a scientist you should re- read what scientists have written and um, just to get a little bit of that feeling of the voice I mean I'm sure real you know virologists would, would go through it and find holes in the plot but um, it is based on, on my best reading of, of the science uh, as good as I could and I'd say you know I I have been at this novel for eight years and maybe the first few years were an awful lot of that kind of background research went into it, so yeah.
0: Yeah, and I I often thought as I was reading it that it reminded me a bit of Margaret Atwood's Orcs and Crake. Have have you read that?
1: I have not but Margaret Atwood is, that's high praise indeed.
0: Yeah, yeah, you should (laughs) have a read of it. I think you might like it. There there are some parallels.
1: Okay, great. I'll I'll check that out,
0: yeah. So, yeah. the life of a scientist, um, Brian Matarossi is a, he's a bit of an anti-hero, isn't he? And, and I think he did quite well. Yeah. You did quite well, I yeah. think, with both Brian Matarossi and, and Art Bloom, you know, in all of the characters, really, resisting making them too sentimental.
1: Well, exactly, yeah. I think that, that was a big challenge for me, was because um, I, I didn't want them to be villains, but at the same time, you know, particularly the central character who's, who's done this, this huge thing and change the world. Um, and as, a, as an author, I think it's very important for me that I write the character in such a way that, you know, he, he neither comes across as a, as a protagonist in the conventional sense nor as an absolute villain because if I wrote him that way, it, it would upset the balance in the book of, you know, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is he guilty? Is he innocent? And I sort of wanted to leave the reader to make up her own mind or his own mind about... You know whether this this is a good thing or a bad thing, or you know, and, and come to that conclusion themselves.
0: Yes, yes, and it also another thing that I felt was was quite interesting in the book. Um, and maybe there's a little metafiction going on here, but um, you know, this notion of, of how we manipulate truth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of the one of the themes in the book is is that the the trial uh, that that Brian Madrosi is, is 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 facing becomes totally mediaized i mean he's, he's really in the media eye and um this the theme that runs through it is just you know at some point there's the truth and then there's what's perceived by the public and uh these two things you start to realize as, as the book goes on don't necessarily have to be the same um and i i, I in my own life I've, I've seen that i've worked in the sort of policy sphere before and you can see how quickly uh, truth becomes um, who controls the message, as opposed to what what's actually being said behind that. So, uh, yeah, I think that's definitely true.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to suggest anything, but I um, imagine in your uh, in your line of business too, the, even how we manipulate the figures can change the nature of the truth.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can look at a, a set of figures, and we we just had a thing here in your you know growth economic growth is always measured in. Gross Domestic Product, and just last year in Europe, uh, there was a major exercise underway to reclassify a lot of stuff in the economy um, that that wasn't classified before. So, for instance, illegal activity is now included in the GDP figures for Europe, um, which which didn't happen before. So that that just makes you know no, nothing has changed in the European economy, but all of a sudden you've got a you know two or three percentage point increase in the level of GDP right across the, the European Union. So, that, you know, that, that's the sort of thing that you can do with numbers and uh, to tell the story you want to tell, really. So, um, um, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that can happen on, on many levels. I mean, I mean, the technical people, I suppose, are always trying to tell a, as true a story as possible. But sort of between that technical
0: uh, layer
1: and uh, what comes out the other end, uh, there's an awful lot of actors involved.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, and that, again, that, that creates a lot of, um, just bringing it back to a fictional sphere, that creates a lot of interesting tension in the book as the trial progresses.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, ho- I, I hope so. I think that um, makes the trial sort of come to life a little bit when we, s- we see it also from the media aspect and the media angle and try, try to get, I think, try to get the world into the courtroom a little bit because, um, you know, you can imagine with a, if a virus were released on that scale. Um, it's going to change the world. So the media attention there is going to be enormous. And, um, you know, it's a challenge, I suppose, as a writer to try to convey that and, and, and make that excitement palpable to the reader.
0: Yes. And Matteros, he does some pretty cool things, too. I mean, you know, he cures cancer, for example.
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, and th- that was all about setting him up as, you know, is he a villain? Is he a hero? Is he, is he a complicated guy in between? Um, exactly. I mean, he's genius that, that that much is sure and uh you know he, he he has had a tough life so you know while what he's done is extreme i think you know this sort of biographical account of him very much and i, I don't want to give too much away but it very much sets him up as, a, as an interesting guy and you can kind of say wow i mean look what he's accomplished and where he's come from and, and, and how driven he is and, and, and i think we all like to sort of re- or at least I sort of respect people like that in a way so um, yeah and as you say the, the biological cures that he comes up with uh, in his early career are, are, are truly uh, good deeds that he's done as well so, um, so yeah I, I think that's true.
0: Yes uh, do you feel a little bit uh, uh, sort of uh, bereft <laughs> having left him after eight years or, or is it a relief?
1: It's, it's a relief I mean <laughs> five years ago when I finished the very first draft of this book, and that felt like, oh wow, mission accomplished. Um, but of course it wasn't. That was just the beginning of the journey, the hardest the hardest part of, of writing, I think, certainly for me, but a lot of writers do say this, is is editing and going back to something that you really love. When, when I look at the final book as it's published now, and I think back on my first draft, probably some of the things that I thought were the best pieces of writing are no longer in the book at all um, because they, they just didn't fit right and in the editorial process they, they just needed to be taken out um, so it's been such a long journey to sort of get the book to where it is now and I, I've had a tremendous editor who I work with uh, here in Ireland um, Bernadette Kearns is her name and um, I think she's really helped me to sort of sculpt the book into the shape that it's in now but it's, it's been such a long journey that at this stage um, there is a sense of relief that it's over to be honest and i'm very much looking forward to starting on, on my new new, new book um, work on the first draft of that will begin uh just as soon as i come back from vacation <laughs>
0: i'll ask you about that shortly um but sure. t- tell me a little bit um we started talking about this before the show began um, this notion of living outside the country you grew up grew up in um do you feel that the writer in a way is always a bit of an outside observer a- and it helps to be away from perhaps the blind spot of, of home
1: oh absolutely i mean i've, I've you know i've met i, I have myself have traveled an awful long in fact i don't even know um how i would identify myself you know what what, what kind of accent i even have at this stage i couldn't tell you um, probably somewhere between Irish and American with perhaps hints of Europe uh, uh, scattered here and there uh, in my continents but um, I've travelled so much that um, that gives you a perspective. And the people you meet as well all say it. When you're outside of your home country or your home environment or, or the place you grew up, it's only then that you start to get a, a perspective on on what that means to be say American, to be irish or to be any nationality um it's when you sort of travel outside that that you see that and and that's when you become an observer and you say ah so that's what people in that country are like or or or, or other people observe you when you travel as well and and, and have judgments about you particularly if you're an american traveling in europe you know there's an awful lot of stereotypes about americans that you have to confront um a lot of europeans think americans are all ignorant for instance and um that, that gives you a perspective on what an American is, and that when you go back to America, then you start to see America differently. And I think that that's exactly um, the process that writers have to go through um, when they when they describe things in books, is, you know, how does an outsider see this?
0: Yes. And um, I, I suppose, as well, um, the idea of travelling and exploring, um, do you find because oh, Brian Matarossi, too, was a bit of an outsider, a bit of an explorer, somebody outside his own country, um, that you become kind of nostalgic for home, but home takes on a completely different meaning to a place in, in space.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think certainly there are aspects of that Brian Matarossi biography thread that I can relate to personally quite well, um, that sort of journey across the Atlantic, uh, as germany is one that i undertook at a young age as well but um you become nostalgic absolutely i mean i think for me personally when i left the united states i had had such a difficult sort of childhood that um there was a sense of actually i just want some distance from this but and this is maybe unlike um the character in the book you know with time i I sort of wow, there's some really great things here, and, and I find I do miss this so much. So, um, yeah, I think that that sort of bittersweet nostalgia mixes in um, with your feelings and, and uh, makes you feel, I don't want to say homesick, but definitely gives you uh, a different perspective on the things that you uh, maybe took for granted back when you were younger.
0: Yes, I, I think that's almost something I liked about Brian, this, um, his sort of the, the baggage of guilt he carried with him.
1: terms with that uh, in the book um, and yeah I think that makes him somewhat likable um, mm. and, and again I, I was very careful to uh, counterbalance that with things that absolutely make him very unlikable that's true you know?
0: That is true. <laughs> so,
1: so uh, uh, I don't want to paint him as, as just this good guy but yeah that's one of the things I think people can sympathize with is like oh hold on you know a part of this guy as he goes through the world and, and does these things good or bad he's kind of a lost little boy who um, was kind of taken away from life at a very early age and you can kind of see how that's left him with these deep insecurities that maybe he's attempted to cover up with um, you know, with all his work and, and his sort of devotion to his science um, but has never really kind of come to terms with uh, the emotional side of that um, so yeah I think that's, that's one of his better or more sympathetic traits shall we say
0: yes so uh, on your day job as an economist, um, you've you've actually said the the structured way of thinking, which defines the dismal science, has its advantages in the creative sphere as well. Um, talk to me a little bit about the notion of structured thinking and the bisection between your job and your writing.
1: Well, yeah, I think it comes through most strongly in the sort of trial narrative um, in terms of actually setting down the arguments and the, the policy arguments um, for what this overpopulation, you know, issue is and what this infertility virus will have caused. Um, So the overlap really comes in most strongly in terms of actually structuring stuff there. But, you know, in my day job, I'm an economist and I write a lot of policy documents, um, speeches and and, and things like that. So you are constantly forced to have a very structured approach to the way you think, um, which maybe not something that comes naturally to me I mean I'm I'm left handed so I think of myself as very sort of creatively minded and I like things to just sort of flow a little bit randomly out of you know which I think is the biography narrative in the book is is, is much more what comes naturally to me you know this sort of flowing story things are happening la-di-da whereas the trial narrative um, is much more structured and and has to be right because it's a trial Um, but that is very much inspired by my To, to make those arguments in, in, in such a way. Um, and, and hopefully that, that reads as authentic. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I think a lot of yeah. the thinking involved in um, structuring things in a legal argument is, is similar to that which economists do as well.
0: Yes, I felt that. Um, and, and in terms of getting in the mind, um, both for good and bad, perhaps, of Art Bloom and Leeton Kavu, uh, I, I wonder whether um, you weren't you know, infusing a couple of, qualities you might have come across in the day job
1: oh yeah yeah I mean I've worked with lawyers a lot so um, I find lawyers a, a fascinating breed I have to say so, uh, <laughs> um, yeah definitely that sort of way of thinking um, you know I think probably all writers borrow from their life experiences and you know all of the characters in my book are you know people that I there are bits about people that I've observed and, and you know people who know me very well um, can pick pick things out and say, ah, I know where you got that from. You know? yeah. <laughs> that can be sometimes a little uncomfortable, but uh, it's it's just a tool that writers rely on. So of definitely, the, the characters in my in my book, particularly the lawyers, are drawn on some real life experiences that I've had. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And I suppose it's uh, it's great to be able to sit in a boring meeting and uh, and notice people's character traits. It's kind of soothing. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> acknowledge it. I'm one of those, uh, you know, sort of uh, closet observers who will sit in a meeting and actually just be thinking about how I can use that particular particular person in my next story.
0: Yeah, That's right. The way he's, the way he's scratching his arm is fascinating. I think I could do something with that.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Oh, I've been there. Goodness, no. yeah, for sure, I understand. I've been in a few boring meetings myself. Um, <laughs> So um, we're almost out of time, but uh, the Hydra was independently published. Um, Just tell me briefly, why did you decide to go that route, and and how have you found that experience so far?
1: Well, I mean, I found the experience really, really good. I mean, sales are good so far, and uh, the amount of control that I've had over the process has been great. Um, I think the big caveat, uh, and what's really important about independent publishers uh, doing it themselves now, is that... it's not a shortcut for going through the professional process so everything that has to go into um, a a traditionally published book is going to have to go into an independently published book uh, as well and that means um, first of all it means getting a really good editor and working through that editorial process um, rigorously Um, there's no shortcuts for that I think whatever avenue of publication you choose you know you're going to have to liaise with um, typesetters cover artists and things like that to make sure the book is absolutely of as high a quality as you can make it. And then I suppose a big one is the marketing, um, where you just have to do all of the marketing work yourself.
0: Like 6am um, six, six interviews. Said, <laughs> six, exactly, 6am six <laughs> interviews.
1: And, you know, um, meet the other events and, and going along giving speeches and, and just anything you can do, basically, really. Um, but that said, I think the publishing industry is changing now divide between traditional publishing and uh, independent publishing I think it is breaking down Um, so where it will be in two or three years I'm not sure anyone can say I mean even if you talk to traditional publishers now they say that basically the self-published books are are their new slush pile I mean that's how they get their work that's how they source their work and there are very few um, new authors who are being taken on uh, by the larger publishers for that reason Um, and at the same time you know more and more, like my editor, for instance, in the past would have worked with publishing companies, um, but because the industry is changing, it's now working more and more with independent publishers. Um, so e- that shift has been ongoing. The market share, in particular for e-books, among independent publishers has increased dramatically since sort of 2012. Um, I think that process is only said to continue. Yeah. So, um, Yeah.
0: Yep. So I guess that's that's quite exciting um, to think of the you know I guess the, the opportunities that are out there. Um, but your point is is uh, definitely important. The idea of it not being a shortcut. You can't just throw any old thing on the market because the public won't have it. It's got to be of similar quality.
1: Absolutely. And I think independent publishers who take themselves seriously not only want to make sure that that level of quality is there, but frankly are prepared to go one beyond. Uh, yes. script was, you know, one hundred percent.
0: Sure. So talk to me. You've you've got this uh book that you're about to start working on, The Fortune Teller, or is that already is that already in the pipeline?
1: It already exists as a screenplay. I wrote it first as a screenplay, um just because it flowed naturally as a screenplay, but um my task I suppose over the summer is gonna be to adapt it um as a novel. Um which would be interesting because I've I've you know, I've done plot plans to novels, but to actually do, you know, a screenplay to a novel is, is an interesting challenge, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, it's going to also be a political thriller, um, but a slightly different story uh, to um, the Hydra, and maybe in some ways even more controversial, if that's possible, <laughs> in terms of the subject matter. Um, it's about a, an Irishman who's... A, a, Irregular immigrant to the United States, and basically gets caught up in the frenzy of the post-9/11 uh, witch hunt uh, that takes place. Um, is wrongly accused of its sort of terrorist involvement. See him as the link between the IRA and uh, Al Qaeda, and uh, he's taken away and tortured. And his love interest uh, is a sort of a New York um, uh, lawyer. So again a New York lawyer <laughs> comes back into it. I don't know why. But she's um she she ends up sort of fighting for his release. Um so it's it's two stories. It's the story of him and, and how he his resilience against face against the powers of the state really and it's the story of, of her and um her fight sort of um to uh, to get him free.
0: Wonderful. It sounds absolutely fascinating. I'll I'll look forward to reading it.
1: Thank you. Hopefully it'll be out in 2016.
0: Fantastic. That is, unfortunately, all we have time for today. But, Graham, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, don't forget to tune in next week when we interview Vagabondage author Beth Spencer. Bye for now.
1: Bye-bye.